She had uh, accosted a 93-year-old man. He had opened the door. Uh, She forced her way into the residence, began to choke him violently, started to take things off of his bookshelf, was going to... Now, he, uh, luckily, a neighbor had pulled up out front, had honked the horn, as he customarily did. This victim had indicated or suggested to her that that was a police officer, and for whatever, that spooked her, and she ran from the residence and, and ran away. Warning. The podcast you're about to listen to may contain graphic descriptions of violent assaults, murder, and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Murder Police Podcast, The Murder of Ronald Browning, Part 3 of 4. She's our prisoner. Let's let her, let's get her to a a different hospital for treatment. So we said, well, at at the very minimum, let us follow you. We'll follow you out there. Let's, let's just make sure everything's safe. Now, as we leave the jail, pulling down this little stretch, a little hillside to leave, to get on airport road there. And we just see this cruiser in front of us just wildly dart across the road, almost into the oncoming lane, almost over the hillside. And, and we're thinking, what in the world has just happened? So we, we, we get out, we, we get up there, and we, we're talking to them. And at this point, we see everybody is coughing and gagging. And we talk to them. And what they've had to do is she became so combative that they had a pepper sprayer inside the vehicle. And there again, not a partitioned vehicle. So everybody gets a little bit of that. And as I'm sure you're aware, pepper spray is not, not enjoyable. So they were all really having a hard time at this point but they pressed through they you know they they wanted to get her out there i think everybody just wanted to get her treated and get her somewhere else other than with us yes so at that point we said well if you're you're good let's go let's just go we'll follow you you're good to drive he said no problem so we start down the interstate and we're going to take the exit and go to uh, beckley appalachian regional hospital who actually specializes in dealing people with that that are combative, they have restraint systems and so forth to be able to handle that kind of situation. And as we're driving there, we we miss the exit. Oh, <laughs> we don't. But well, the, yeah, the yeah, officers yeah. transporting her missed the exit. Yeah, absolutely. So we were uh, we were shocked. We you know we're behind this vehicle expecting it to take this exit, go to the hospital. It does not. So here we are. We're going down toward Princeton at that point, which is not where we want to be. So I, you know. Unfortunately, we didn't have direct communication between the cars, so we weren't able to say, hey, where are you headed? Because that's not where we're supposed to be. But we were able to to contact them through our local EOC, our emergency operations center. And they just, I guess, in the the ruckus had missed that. So at one point, we're, we're driving down the interstate, and they just suddenly pull off the side of the road and just come to a screeching halt. And we're thinking, oh, no. And we see one of the officers jump out, and he runs to the back door. He's trying to get in the back door, but he can't. So we're thinking the worst of the worst, you know, at this point. As we approach the vehicle, I remember distinctly this guy opens the door. 
and he screams. Her finger just fell off. Her finger just fell off. Oh, my. And she has gotten so combative at that point that she's actually leaned over the front. They're getting not partitioned, so she's leaning over the front into the driver's floorboard. You know, she's just going thrashing about and, and just everywhere. So luckily we're able to, we were help them restrain her. You know, at that point, we, we wanted to get her out of there. You know, and then I said, we really need her in a partitioned car. So I said, we can provide that. Let's have an officer come out so that we can get her there safely. So we did. We had an officer come. We loaded her into this partition car. We wanted to get there quick. And at that point, she had just been so violent and so uh, chaotic that we said, just run lights and sirens the whole way. Get us to Barrage Hospital. We'll follow you the whole way. Let's just get her in there, get her cleared, get her to the jail. So that's what we did. We took her out, lights and sirens all the way to Barrage, or Beckley Appalachian Regional. We got there. At that point, they don't really know what to expect either. So we kind of they're, they're trying to triage her. They want to get her to find out what's going on from the officers before they bring her in. So I spent some time with Camille at that point. They kind of stood at the car, didn't ask her any questions, didn't really have a lot of conversation, just tried to kind of calm her down and said, look, you've got some severe injuries. You know, your hands are, are obviously in really bad shape. Please let these people treat you, you know. And at that point, she made some utterances. You know, she made the statement that she had killed an old white man today. She made that statement to me. She had made a statement about God telling her to do it. There were some things that I documented throughout that process, but didn't question her further on. You know, procedurally, it wouldn't have been re- really been appropriate at that time. So, so, you know, we certainly documented the things that she said, but we kind of just let her talk. At that point, took her in the hospital. It took uh, five or six staff and officers to hold her down. They were able to sedate her at that point, and they restrained her to a bed and, and so they could treat those hands. Interesting. And you use the word right utterance. That's, yeah. you know, that's, that's a big deal. When we're talking about statements from people and things like that and the procedural part of interviewing them, and that's the whole thing I was picking up on, too, is that one of the vested interests you all had in being with her the whole time was the spontaneous utterance possibility, is you want to be in earshot. and. Scott could have done it. You know, they could have uh, testified to anything they'd heard and everything. But being that it was in your all's jurisdiction, it, it just shortens the path going in the court a little bit. But, yeah, if somebody just spontaneously utters something, that's a lot different than anybody from the government asking a question. So Absolutely. It became important later. That was one of those planets aligning, for sure. Good deal. And I don't recall uh, at that point or if it was later that we began to talk to Scott officers about their incidents that led to them being called and them arresting her ultimately but those were some pretty violent attacks that had taken place at a couple locations and as the crow flies it's not far from where this victim lives to mapscott jurisdiction it's literally hundreds of yards to mapscott's jurisdiction from his house and then not far to uh, to where these other victims were were located i don't recall if it was at that point we we at some point during the, the conversations with them, or if it was later that we did? Both. I, we had ta- I know that we had talked to them at Raleigh General a good deal about, you know, how they had come upon this situation, how they had taken her into custody. Uh, you know, what we learned from that is that she had actually forced herself into a, a, into a couple residences in Mapscott. In the first one, she had uh, accosted a 93-year-old man. He had opened the door. Uh, she forced her way into the residence, began to choke him violently started to take things off of his bookshelf, was going to, uh, now 
he, uh, luckily, a neighbor had pulled up out front, had honked the horn, as he customarily did. This victim had indicated or suggested to her that that was a police officer. And for whatever, that spooked her. And she ran from the residence and, and ran away. So Mavscott gets that call. They start investigating that. And as they're dealing with that situation, they receive another call that she has forced her way into another residence. And at this point, it's a male and a female who have children and a grandmother at the residence. And they state that this this black female has forced her way into the home and that uh, she will not leave and that she's, uh, she's gotten violent, has shoved the grandmother. And they were requesting help at that point. And that's why that's how Mavs got originally comes into contact with Camille. And that she was covered in blood. Yeah. You know, that's one thing they were reporting that she had injuries and was covered in blood you know, when they were initially received those calls. Huge help from Mapscott then. Gigantic. Absolutely. I mean, all those yeah. efforts and, and relaying that important information in that early timeliness, that, that's really good of their part, too. Oh, it's, it's one of the neat things about this case is the way it kind of all came together, that they did their part, we did our part, patrol did their part. You know, it all kind of worked out in the end together. It was all very important. Good stuff. And so where do we go from there? We've got her at the hospital. They've sedated her and they're treating her, correct? Yeah. Yeah. At that point now, uh, you know, we pretty much relinquished custody of her at that point. You know, we, t- we took her out of our Beckley PD cruiser, uh, and she's Mab Scott's prisoner. So we went back to the office, began to speak about the next steps in this investigation. Uh, she's been sedated at this point, so we didn't obviously didn't want to try to talk to her in that state. And also there are some procedural things there. We didn't want to delay her presentment to the magistrate and so forth for Mab Scott charges. So we knew we wanted to interview her, but we wanted to make sure that we did that right. Interject, because I'm a Kentucky boy, and I've always I've been interested in this. Tell me how that process works with presentation to a magistrate, because that's not a thing in Kentucky. What's that based on, and what's that process look like? Well, you know, there is a certain time period. I don't know that there's an a exact set amount of time. There's been some case law on that. But they must be able to see a judge and be arraigned on the charges that they are charged with in a reasonable amount of time. Now, our magistrates are not out 24 hours a day, so there was no magistrate out at that point. But we felt it more prudent, and and through consultation with some of our local prosecutors, uh, that we basically postpone our interview until the following day after she had seen a magistrate and been arraigned on those Mavscott charges. They just felt that would be more prudent. Smart. A lot of challenges constitutionally on that once somebody's in custody and then the phases of of when you move around. It's much different than if you pick them up and bring them right to an interview room when those processes start. That's a more complex issue. Good thinking. Good thinking. Well, And so at that point, you know, uh, we continued to to look in the investigation, kind of plan our approach to her, kind of discuss that amongst ourselves as to how we wanted to approach meeting with her. The next morning, that's what we did. We went to the jail. They had actually treated her at our, our, that Barich hospital. They were able to accept her at the jail after that. So when we went out there, they, uh, the jail was kind of shell-shocked, to be honest. Uh, all the guards out there had dealt with her. So apparently she had become violent again. It had caused quite a scene out there. Had to be restrained in what we call a restraint chair for a long period of time. And it actually got to the extent that they did something I've never witnessed them do before. They had, she got so violent that they had to put her in a basket, kind of like a basket that you would lower into the canyon to bring out a, you know, a, a, a victim, uh, an injury victim in that kind of situation. So they had to actually lay her into this basket and restrain her hands and legs 
And that was something that I know I had never seen before. So we, they actually got her out for us, took us into this little uh, interview room, kind of a, a video arraignment room is what they call that. And Dave and I began to interview her. I think also during the night after we left the hospital, we met with the state police crime scene team to, to re- turn. The, they relinquished the scene back to us, done a final walkthrough with us, showed us you know everything that, that they had learned from their investigation, the items they had collected. You know, one thing that sticks out that I recall and remember was she had a, an earring missing, and then you, there was an earring found at the residence that matched that earring. And then after that, I think we. We always con- you know, consult with our prosecutor's office during these types of events. We, we ended up getting search warrants. You, you typed search warrants for DNA, for nail scrapings, for you know hair hair samples to, to compare with the the fabric of those braids. You know all the different items you would expect us to collect. So that's we drafted those, got the search warrant signed, and then we went to the jail. While we're at the jail, you know, I remember collecting all the different evidentiary things that we would need, you know, scrapings of her fingernails, anything that we could use ultimately for evidence later, any type of trace evidence, you know, pulled hair samples, things like that that would connect her to that scene. And then the interview occurred right after that. That's a good stroke to be able to get scene information before you go in that box. Because I've, you all have had cases, too, and I've had cases. Actually, we produced and put one out where Sometimes you have to run before you have a whole lot. That's your one shot, right? And you cross your fingers that you can uncover some things. But being armed with those details, that makes that interview have a higher potential of doing well. So that, that was good. You had the opportunity to get a scene summary before you even went in. Oh, absolutely. Now, when you interviewed her, was she still in this basket, Gizmo? No, no. They had brought her out of that. They, they brought her into this video arraignment room. We actually had a little bit of trouble getting them to not restrain her. They had seen the worst parts of Camille. They had seen the way that she could act. So they were a little cautious. Uh, and we didn't really want her to be restrained for our interview purposes. So, you know, we had to make that request a couple of times. But finally, they did remove the cuffs and, and we began to speak to her. And, you know, to be honest, uh, as far as interviews, you know, and I know Dave and I have both done thousands of interviews. This was one where you just kind of had to turn it on and let her go. Uh, she remembered extraordinarily details, details that we would have never thought to ask her. And we just began to talk to her about this incident, and she really just told us things that we would have never, never even thought to ask. Well, run through that as best as you recall, because I'm, I'm just on the edge of my seat. <laughs> I know when we first walked in, as we're speaking with her, we asked her, you know, do you remember us? We were out with you at the hospital last night, and I had been wearing a North, North Face jacket the night prior. And that's what she referred to me as. She's like, yes, I remember you, your North Face. And I mean, it was just you know, the level of detail that she provided with some of the things was was very eerie. Well, she was just she was quite uh, docile at that point. You know, you're expecting we had seen her fight and thrash and just wrestle with us all night. And at the time that we did the interview, she was actually pretty calm and, and spoke very very feminine, very gentle was, uh, you know, now the details she gave obviously were not, not gentle in any fashion, but, uh, her demeanor was quite calm at that point, almost eerily calm, I would say, you know, so we're asking her about this and she, she tells us, and now some of the things that she said kind of stood out to us as odd, you know, obviously, 
She did remember leaving the house, remembers uh, jogging down the street. She says that uh, forces, she didn't really describe as to what, but she would say the wind pushed me a certain direction. Or uh, I remember she said northwest, it pushed me northwest. And then she said that uh, it had led her down Odessa Avenue and that she saw that residence and decided that she was thirsty. And she said that her first contact with Mr. Browning ever was knocking on his door and asking for a glass of water. She said he invited her in, gave her this glass of water, and she said that something told her to, to kill that man at that point. And she, she described having shoved him over backwards, and he fell in an area right in front of a TV stand with TV on it. Talked about the TV falling over, and uh, she saw the jar of change, and she acknowledged having grabbed that jar of change and just bludgeoned, bludgeoned him. She was very frustrated with him. You know, one of the things she kept talking about is that she was very upset that he would not die quick enough. So she, she kept doing things and trying to make him die. And she talked about there again, beating with the jar chain. She talked about trying to stab his eyes. She felt that that would help him die quicker. So she, she stabbed his eyes with a tarp burner, like a candle burner. One of the things that she didn't really get into that we determined from the medical examination is uh, the ligature strangulation. One of the scene at the scene, she, he did have a uh, extension cord kind of laid across his neck, so we thought that was significant. Uh, one of the other things that she got into was she talked about being, getting very frustrated with him there again for not dying. She said it just took way too long, and she talks about she kind of mocked him at one point, and she says that at that point he starts yelling for his dog. Is how she describes it, and she says that he's he's yelling. Rex, Rex, Rex. And she thought he was calling a dog or another pet. And she was very annoyed by that. You know, that's one of the things she really, she, she uh, illustrated to us. We knew at that point that Rex was his wife, Rexanna, and that he had been pleading for her, unfortunately. And that was just one of the most horrible facts about that interview. She just kind of mocked that. And she talked about, that's when we discovered why he had injuries to his uh, ribs. She said there again that he was not dying fast enough, so she, she actually kicked him in the ribs, and it broke several of his ribs, caused some internal damage that we had seen during the autopsy. As far as explaining why, I don't know that I can tell you that. There's, there was really not a whole lot of that interview that explained motive, per se. She just very detailed. She had talked about things she had seen in the house. She, she, she brought up news clippings, little newspaper clippings that she had seen inside the residence, just random facts and things that she had seen that we knew matched our crime scene. And one of the things that really stood out when the uh, crime scene team processed the scene is they discovered that the suspect had actually spread gasoline throughout the lower level of the residence. They found the gas can it was covered in blood, and they, they, you know, you could immediately smell the gas in the, in the second floor or lower floor. So we knew that someone had done that, and obviously the assumption there is that they're trying to destroy the evidence is what we would assume. And, and without our prompting, that's what she said. She said, you know, I, uh, I did. I spread gas around there. She said, I figured if I got caught, I better burn it up. So she talked about it. We said, well, why didn't you? You know, because you, you, we determined she'd been in that house for hours. She talked about having taken a shower in his shower. She had placed her bloody clothes in his washing machine. Those were still there when the, the evidence team processed the scene. 
she spent a long time there. So we thought, well, why, why didn't you burn it? Yeah. And one of the things that she talked about was in her, you know, explorations of the house, she had actually lifted this furnace grate and accidentally stumbled into the basement, fell through the furnace grate and into the basement of the house. Now, she was not able, she said she would have burned it down. She had seen matches upstairs, but when she tried to reenter the upper level, the basement door was locked. She couldn't get back up there. It was another one of those lucky things for us, lucky breaks, because had we'd had a whole different scene if this had been burned up. So she couldn't get back upstairs. She said she would have if she could, but she couldn't couldn't get to the matches to do it. Did she ever go into detail about the milk or the milk of magnesia or to explain going into the attic? She did. She she didn't go into great detail about why she went into all these various areas, but she did talk about the milk. She just she had this seemed to be almost an insatiable thirst. You know, that's how that's how this incident started. She wanted a glass of water from the gentleman. She had talked about drinking the milk, trying to get satisfied from that. Another thing that we hadn't mentioned earlier is that the Mavscot police had mentioned that she she had feces on her at one point when they were dealing with her, that she wanted to go to the bathroom and they were trying to keep her restrained and she didn't make it in time, basically. You know, obviously that was odd to begin with, but one of the things that we determined from the crime scene and from talking to her is she had drink, she had had a laxative, had a drank of this bottle of laxative because she saw that it said cherry flavored. And there again, that thirst, she drank the whole bottle. And, and we knew from the scene that that's what actually caused that. And the map, Scott, when she went to those houses, she was that same thirst. She kept asking for something to drink. At each house that she went to, that's one of the big things that she really wanted was something to drink. Uh, so she definitely had an, an unquenchable thirst, it seemed. I mean, she drank half a gallon of the milk. Hmm. So when she falls in the basement and can't get back upstairs, what, what's her next move there? Does she? Well, that's, you know, from our first arrival scene, we suspected that the, the assailant had left through a basement door. There was a basement door ajar down there. We talked to, to Rexanna and determined that door was never open. That was typically secured from the inside. Uh, you know, from looking at that scene, there was blood on the latch where she clearly left that way. So it appeared she had, that's where also where the jacket that mentioned that Dave mentioned earlier, uh, it was kept in the basement. It was a Raleigh General Chaplain's jacket. She had obtained that there. And uh, we later found out that she took some personal items, a small box full of letters and just various documents, uh, nothing of any real importance. But she took that with her and actually left. You know, we didn't discover until the next day. Dave and I went back and looked and, and kind of canvassed the area in the, in the daylight. And we found a blood trail. And basically where her hands had bled up this uh, kind of wooded trail uh, that led toward Mavscott. And, you know, that's what we kind of tracked her back to the incidents in Mavscott from that point. And it was, it was kind of odd because the trail he's, he's describing would have led back to her house as well. So she could have left there and went back to her house, yet she chose not to and chose to, to continue on. You know, the things she described in the interview were, were weird. I mean, it, the birds directing her, the wind directing her. She would recall things in detail that she saw on the sides of vehicles, tag numbers, license numbers, or something that was written. And we would later find, as we became as the area and obtained surveillance video, and she was describing a truck that had been parked there, and she was able to describe some of the things in the real estate office she passed. And but you know, she said that she had been watching 
some shows on TV. And then when she got to this house, that there was an old timey Southern show on. And, you know, that kind of made her feel like he wasn't a good, a good person. And that, you know, as she said, that something told her, uh, some force told her to, to attack him. And that's what she did. She departs. You, you'll find the blood trail. Am I getting the chronology correct on this? The other break-ins and assaults happened before or after this one? They would have been after the homicide. Okay, so I just want to make sure I'm keeping that straight in my head to keep the chronology straight. During the interview, did you ever directly ask any why questions? I know that I wasn't real big on going into that avenue until I got the substantial things. That was just my thing because, you know, you're you're on a, you never know when they're going to stop, right? Did you ever get to a point where you tried to go a little deeper as to the, the why? You know, we did. We we tried to dive into motive a little bit, but to be honest, she really, she didn't have answers for those questions. You know, she could go into great detail about the residents, go into great detail about what she did to him, uh, what she had done prior in the day. But when it got to the why of it, she really couldn't explain those things. It was always just, you know, something told me to do this. She, or She read his mail and she was quoted things back to us that she saw in the mail. I mean, she remembered his name from his last name from the mail that she had read. She, you know, the little religious handouts are our daily bread. You know, she had talked about reading those and her grandfather had given her those as she was a kid. You know, so she read those and, and we could tell the milk was in the room where he was. It almost appeared that someone had sit there and, and looked through things and read things and drank the milk because, you know, obviously the milk wasn't in the kitchen. It was in the room where he was found. So she had got that, it appeared, and, and drank it you know, while he's laying there. Whether he's alive or, or dead at that point, we don't know because we do believe, and I think the medical examiner is able to say that he could have lived for, you know, amount of time uh, prior to expiring. So it wasn't a quick, uh, unfortunately, it wasn't a quick death. During the interview, you talked about how she'd calmed down a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Did she display much emotion in any kind of direction when she described the events? Did she display anger when she gets to certain parts, or was she matter of factual? How did that look on her demeanor? Hey, you know there's more to the story, so go download the next episode like the true crime fan that you are. The Murder Police Podcast is hosted by Wendy and David Lyons and was created to honor the lives of crime victims so their names are never forgotten. It is produced, recorded, and edited by David Lyons. The Murder Police Podcast can be found on your favorite Apple or Android podcast platform, as well as at MurderPolicePodcast.com, where you will find show notes, transcripts, information about the presenters, and much, much more. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, which is closed captioned for those that are hearing impaired. Just search for the Murder Police Podcast and you will find us. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe for more and give us five stars and a written review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your podcast from. Make sure to subscribe to the Murder Police Podcast and set your player to automatically download new episodes so you get the new ones as soon as they drop. And please tell your friends. Lock it down, Judy.